0: My name is Brady. Uh, today I'm going to be reprising my role as Renaud Vanderit, pastor of Mosaic Church, because uh, he's on vacation and he is reprising his role as the little old lady who lived in the shoe that had so many children, he didn't know what to do. So it's going to be a good, even trade. Um, just a quick challenge to all of you. Okay, challenge. Are you ready? Are you guys ready to accept the challenge? Here's the challenge. I got to teach this message at the nine. And Phil, our executive pastor afterwards, came up to me and said, hey, here's the deal. Couldn't follow you for the first 15 minutes. So if you can follow me for the first 15 minutes, you are better than a pastor of Mosaic Church. Can you answer the call? Secondly, secondly, if you make it through the first 15 minutes, it's all downhill from there. Okay? Are we good? Okay. Here's the deal. We are in the book of Romans. Do you know why we're in the book of Romans? Because it says so. We have to be in the book of Romans because that's what the slide says, okay? So uh, we can't do anything else. We're in the book of Romans. Now, I bet you guys know this, but sometimes it's easy for me to forget, but the book of Romans, it's a letter. that There was a guy who lived 2,000 years ago. His name was Paul. He was a Jewish man. Uh, He, inspired by the Spirit of God, wrote a letter to a group of people, Uh, some people that he knew, some people he didn't know. It was to a church that was located in a city, the city of, anyone know? Rome, yeah, yeah, and Rome in that day and age was the pinnacle of cities. I mean, it was the city of cities. It was the it was the place of you know art and architecture, of of politics and life. You would went into Rome, and you went into it. You were amazed, like if someone might walk into New York today and just be in awe of what all's going on. So this was like the city. This is where Caesar lived. Uh, the emperor of all of the, you know, the, the, you know, the Roman empire, which is basically controlling the known world. And there was a church that was planted in Rome. Now this church had two different kinds of people. They had Jewish people and they had not Jewish people or, or Gentiles, as the Bible would call them. And the reason that was, is from a Jewish vantage point, they saw the world in two kinds of people, Jewish people and not Jewish people. And so when you read scriptures and you hear uh, Gentiles or Greeks, it's kind of a catch-all term for everybody else, okay? And so in this church, you have Jewish people and you have Gentile people, which sounds great, it sounds amazing. You think, man, how amazing that these people were able to, to integrate so well, and they, they, you, know, they were, they were, you know it was just love and harmony and community. No, no, not at all, okay? And, and there's good reason for that, because for generations upon generations before that, the Jewish people had been oppressed by basically every Gentile nation that had ever ruled the world, okay? So the Romans at, at the current time, the Greeks before them, uh, the Persians before them, Babylon before them, and Egypt before them. So, so So if you were a Jewish person and you met a Gentile, it's likely their ancestors had oppressed your ancestors. It's just, that's kind of the way it was. Now, the Jewish people were an odd group of people to the Gentile world. They they lived differently. They acted differently. They talked differently. They kind of separated themselves from them. And so they were discriminated against a lot. Um, Especially in the capital city of Rome. Especially in Rome. So there was a lot of discrimination going on, a lot of exclusion going on. But the interesting thing, at least to me, was that the Jewish people, even though they had been oppressed, even though they had been enslaved, they had a lot of ethnic pride, a lot of national pride. They believed that they were better, that they were superior to all the other nations. They were the biological descendants of Abraham of Abraham. How could they not be better than all the other nations? And so you had Jewish people looking down upon Gentiles. You had Gentiles looking down upon Jewish people. You had Jewish people segregating and separating themselves from the Gentiles. You had the Gentiles doing that. And you had this going on in the church. People always talk about, man, I'm going to go back to the early church. I'm going to go back to the early church. And you think, okay, um, about like it is today. it, there's a lot, of, a lot of problems, a lot of issues. And so Paul, because he knew some of these people and he desired to know the rest of them and cared about them so deeply, he wrote this letter. He wrote this letter and said, I've got the solution for you. It's the gospel. Bless you. It's the gospel. You know, we're in church, we can do that, right? Um, Because the gospel puts us all in the same playing field. The gospel equalizes us, whether we're Jew or Gentile, whether male or female, slave or free. It doesn't matter. It equalizes all of us, and it does it in two ways. It does it in two ways. The first way is the gospel reveals that every single human being has been infected by the disease of sin. All of us. And we've all been complicit in our sin. We've all actually acted in sin. And therefore, every single human being is justly condemned under the weight of our own sin. So we're all equal in that. All equal in our condemnation. Then, in the church, we're equal in a second way. Because all followers of Jesus have been the recipient of God's grace as a free gift, not because of what we've done Not because of who we are, not because of our ethnicity, but because of how great God is and what he has done through the person of Jesus Christ, okay? So we're equal in sin, and then in the church, we're also equal in the gift of grace that we have. We should be completely and utterly equalized. Starting in chapter 5 of Romans, Paul begins to unpack some of the implications of this. Okay, and so he says there are two different kingdoms going on. And we'll represent kingdom one over here, the old kingdom, not you, but here on the stage, and kingdom, uh, the new kingdom over here, okay? So the old kingdom is the kingdom of this world, it's the kingdom of death, it's the kingdom of sin, it's the kingdom that's in Adam, okay? The new kingdom, it's the kingdom of heaven, it's the kingdom of grace, of light, the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of freedom, the kingdom of life. So you have the old kingdom and you have the new kingdom. Bless you. And Paul says to followers of Jesus, something radical has happened to you. Something radical has happened. And, it, and it's because of what stands between these kingdoms. And what stands between these kingdoms is a cross. In between these kingdoms is a cross. And when you begin to follow Jesus, you have died to this old kingdom, this old way, this old destiny, and you have been raised to life in this new kingdom, this new destiny, this new life. You are adopted sons and daughters of the King of God. You are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. That is a done deal. Amen. Absolutely. But it can be kind of confusing because when we live in this physical temporal world, sometimes it doesn't feel like that. You know what I'm saying? And so Paul introduces two realities. Now this message is brought to you by the number two and the letter H, Um, okay? So you've got two groups of people, Jews and Gentiles, you've got two kingdoms, and then you've got two realities, For followers of Jesus, our eternal spiritual reality has been radically changed, right? Died to this kingdom, raised to this kingdom. And and that's a done deal. It's a done deal. Our position in Christ in this kingdom is set, So we don't need to try and please God. He's already pleased with us. We don't have to try and become his children. We already are his children. And that, to me, brings so much freedom. It takes so much weight off my shoulders, knowing that God already loves me. He's He's already adopted me. I'm already his. And so if I behave badly, there are natural consequences of that in this temporal life that we live in. But my eternal reality is set. But he does say, Paul does say, yeah, what we do though here and now, it matters, right? There are natural worldly consequences to the things that we do. And when we engage in sin, we are submitting ourselves to this old kingdom, this old way, even though we're, we're over here in this, in, in this new kingdom, this new life. Yeah, why would you do that, he says, because what you receive when you, when you engage in that is just slavery. It's, it's death. It's the soul-sucking reality that happens when you engage in things that God says aren't good for you, aren't healthy or helpful for you? He says, but when you live in this way, in the new way, in the new life, you experience incredible amounts of freedom. Now, just to free us a little more, Paul wants to clarify. In the beginning of chapter 7, he says, I'm speaking to those who know the law. This would be those people who know the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament uh, or the Hebrew scriptures at the time. He says, I'm speaking to those who know the law. Now, before Jesus came, God had a people that he had set out, and it was the people of Israel, right? They, that's what the story of the Old Testament is about. It's about these people that, that, that God set aside for himself, the Israelites, and they, were, uh, they, they became the Jewish people. And the Israelites, they had this thing from God called the law. They, you know, God gave them the law, and what the law did was it governed their behavior, Okay, so, so their external behavior, because children of God are supposed to look differently and act differently than the rest of the world, and so the law said, here are these things that you're supposed to do, and here are these things that you're not supposed to do, and it governed your external behavior. Well, that's, that's a tough way to live, okay? And there's some beauties that Paul's going to unpack on, on how, how God brings us out of this, but he says, when you become a follower of Jesus, it's no longer about behavioral modification. That, that we are not about our external behavior. He said, instead, we have the, they had the written code before the Messiah, but now we have got the living, breathing spirit of God, the, the, his law inside of our hearts. And what happens is, as we pursue a relationship with God, the Spirit of God transforms us so that our fruit begins to naturally be different. So it's not me trying to be more patient, be trying to be more loving, me trying to be more kind. It's about me pursuing a relationship with God and Him making me more loving, more kind, more patient, more good, more faithful. It's beautiful what happens. And this is what Paul has unpacked for us already in Romans. It's amazing. Well, if you were a first century uh, Jew, especially, but also a Gentile within a church that has Jewish people in it, you would begin to ask some questions. Uh, some things would come up, some things that you were you're wondering. Okay, Paul, wait a second. What about the law? God gave the law. So are you saying the law is bad? Is the law, sin, is the law part of the problem? And then secondly, Paul, if God chose Israel and and they they couldn't do it, are they bad? Are they a part of the problem? What's going on with the law? What's going on with Israel? How does that work now? What about the Messiah? Now, now the Jewish people would have had a lot of trouble with these things that Paul was saying because they had, you know, grow up in a different reality. And so he really wants to explain these things very well to these people. So grab your Bibles. Turn to Romans chapter 7. And here's how he starts Romans chapter 7, verse 7. He says this What then shall we say? That the law is sin? Is the law sin? Is the law a problem? Because remember, you just said, Paul, we don't have the written code. We have the spirit now in this new et- eternal reality. So is the law bad? Like, did we get rid of the law? What's, is it a problem? And Paul says, usually one of the most strongly worded Greek phrases that there is, he says, certainly not, absolutely not, by no means, the law is not sin. But then he takes a second to kind of unpack the reason why someone might think that it is. He he wants to validate this this misunderstanding because there's good reason the Jewish people might have thought that. And so he says this, he says, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. And this is incredibly brilliant. Um, Paul was likely dictating this letter to somebody, and while he's dictating this letter, he is doing three levels of things. I know we were I know two was kind of our thing this day, but we'll we'll do three, okay. Three things. While he's dictating this letter, this letter reminds me that the Spirit of God must have been inspiring Paul because nobody could do this. It's brilliant. First thing Paul is doing is he's he's using a technique um, that helps people receive things better. Let's say that I was preaching uh, on stage right now. Like, can you imagine that? Just imagine. Brady is preaching on stage right now. You got it? Okay, great. And I'm saying you are sinful, you are the problem, you are doing things that are bad, H- how would you receive that? Really well? No, I, I, I wouldn't. Anytime I'm listening to someone and they're saying I'm the problem and they've got it all figured out, I, I, don't, I don't take that very well, okay? That's just kind of the way that it is. Now, Now imagine this. Imagine even worse that I was saying, this half of the room, you guys have it wrong, you guys are bad, you guys are worthless, and imagine that you guys had had this this group over here, you'd had years of prejudice going on, and and now you have fodder against these people, right, and then they're not going to listen anyways because I'm just speaking at them. This is kind of the situation Paul has, so Paul does this. He says, I, he uses himself as an example. Paul in uh, Philippians talks about how he is like the quintessential Jew, he said, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. According to the law, I am blameless. He said, He says, Me before Christ, if you wanted to know what like, like a Jewish person of Jewish people who obeyed the law, whose passion the law was like, look at me before Jesus. So Paul's gonna use himself before Jesus as an example. That's first level. Second level, he is retelling the story of Israel. This was a very Jewish thing that they did. They would continually put themselves back into the story of the Old Testament. And third level, Paul is retelling the story of Adam. Adam in the garden And he's laying these two uh, levels on top of each other to demonstrate to all the Jewish people that they, outside of Christ, outside of Jesus, are repeating the sin of Adam and thus are in this old kingdom, this old way, that they also need the cross that separates them from the new way. Okay? It's brilliant. It's amazing. So Paul says, here's the deal remember back, okay? He uses him an example first. Level two, he's talking about uh, Israel. And, and level three, he's talking about Adam. Now, now remember these stories, okay? Israel was enslaved in Egypt, right? They were enslaved in Egypt. They cried out to God to save them, and he raised up Charlton Heston, if you remember in the Ten Commandments, <laughs> aka Moses, also known as Moses, raises up Moses to bring them out of, of Egypt And he does that. They take him through the Red Sea. It's brilliant. And then at this point, they start following God in a pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night. How cool would that have been? You, with all of your kinsmen, are following this giant pillar of cloud during the day and this giant pillar of fire at night. Amazing. Things are going well. And then God starts feeding you with manna. You're getting fed by God. You're being led by God. Things are great. They're going well. It's awesome. Well, then God takes them to Mount Sinai and he gives them the law. This is when he gives them the law. And he gives Moses the law up on Mount Sinai. And do you remember what the very first thing is that happens when they get the law? They sin. They, 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 they jump into idolatry, like crazy amounts of idolatry and sensuality, sexuality, like it's amazing. As soon as they get the commandments, Israel jumps into this incredible amount of sin. So the, the, the conclusion is, huh, we were fine before the law, we got the law, and then all this sin happened. So is the law the problem? Rewind to Adam. Adam is, is, is one of God's creation, right? God created the world, if you remember, in Genesis chapter one, and everything was good, right? The light, and it was good. The land, it was good. Water, it was good. Fish, good. Animals, good. Humanity, very good. He creates this very good world. Puts Adam in a garden. Walking around the garden, naming animals. Wrestling with Tyrannosaurus rexes, right? Who knows? But, but it's good. Walking with God. Great relationship. And then God says, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And right then, they're like, got to eat from the tree. But they were fine, and then a commandment came in, and sin came in. So is it the commandment's fault, is it the law's fault that sin is in the world? You can kind of see the logic there. It makes sense that someone could think, oh, the law must be the bad thing. It's causing sin. But Paul says, absolutely not. This is not the problem. He goes on in verse 11, he says, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, it deceived me and through it killed me so that the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. Absolutely not. It's not the commandment that was bad. It's not the law that was bad. He says it was sin seizing an opportunity in me. Which now begs the second question, okay, so if the law is good, if the law isn't the problem, am I the problem? Right? Now and and, and the Jewish people in their minds they would have saw themselves as, as the like humanity of humanity, that they were the best of the best. So is is Israel the best of the best? Are you guys the problem? And Paul goes on. He says it was sin producing death in me. Uh, through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. This Obviously, Paul, pre-Jesus, right? I am of the flesh sold under sin. And he says, for I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. You hear Paul talking about this wrestle, talking about this struggle. He's saying, okay, the law is good, but there's still a problem. There was sin and there was me. There was sin and there was humanity. Sin and there was Israel. Like, is humanity the problem? So he goes on to answer this. He says at verse 17, So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. It's not, I'm, the, I'm not the problem. It's sin that's the problem. He says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Paul is talking about sin as a disease. That sin is such a corrupting force that it can take God's good creation and it can corrupt it to a point where it can utilize God's good law to, to wreak havoc in the nation of Israel. So, obviously, something else is needed, something better is needed. One thing Paul has said, which I think is really neat, is he talks about the desire to do what is right. If you look at the people of Israel, the nation of Israel throughout the Old Testament, they loved the law, they rejoiced in the law. Uh, the longest chapter in all of Scripture is Psalm 119. And the longest chapter in all of Scripture is a praise about the law of God. Like, it's, it's worshiping God and his great commandment. In fact, uh, it, it's a, an acrostic. If you remember, you know, back in, you know, high school when you would write your name, uh, you know, long ways, and, and then each letter became a line of a poem, that's an acrostic. What they did, uh, David took the Hebrew alphabet and made each stanza start with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet to talk about how incredibly beautiful and amazing the law of God is. Israel as a nation loved the law. They thought the law was good, but they realized that they could not live out the law. That's the entire story of the Old Testament, right? Israel loving the law and then rebelling against God. Loving the law and then rebelling against God. Loving the law, rebelling against God. That's what happened over and over and over again. And Paul is saying, yes, although we delighted in the law, although we loved the law, although we thought the law was good, we weren't able to live it out. Something else was going on. On. there was a corruption inside even inside God's people which shows that even God's Israel was in the old way the old kingdom in Adam and that even God's people needed the cross that was between the two he, he brings up this conclusion verse 21 so I find it to be a law that when I do right, evil lies close at hand this is my conclusion about the law It's my conclusion is that I want to do right, but evil is crouching. Uh, This is an allusion back to uh, Adam's children, Cain and Abel. Adam and Eve's children, they had two children, Cain and Abel, right? And, And they were bringing sacrifices to God and Abel, you know, his heart was full and his sacrifice was, was the first fruits and God was pleased in it. Cain's was not, and he was not pleased with Cain's offering. And so Cain was frustrated. He was mad and God came to him. He said, Cain, what's going on? Why, why are you downcast? He said, don't you know that if you, 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 you do well, you're fine? He says, but sin is crouching at your door. It's like a lion crouching ready to devour you. And that's what Paul is saying here. Although I find that although I desire, I want to do right, sin is crouching at my door. He says, four, I delight in the law of God. Psalm 119. I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Yes, I love the law. Yes, I delight in the law. Yes, I think the law is good, but I still cannot live it out. Story of the nation of Israel. And he brings up the question of all questions that Paul wants us to grab of chapter one to the beginning of chapter eight. This is the question that every single one of us should be getting to right now. Who, wretched man or human that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Wretched human that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul looks at Israel And he says, yes, the best of the best. He goes, yeah, before I was in Christ, I thought we were the best of the best. I thought I was the best of the best. I thought we were the pinnacle of humanity. He says, if the pinnacle of humanity cannot live it out, who can? In fact, if the pinnacle of humanity equipped with the best religion has to offer, God's law can't do it, then who can do it? Who can do it? There's got to be something else. There's got to be something more. This is meant to bring us to this question, this despair, this longing, this searching, saying, hey, if Israel can't do it, equipped with God's law, then nobody can do it. Nobody can make their way to God. No one can live righteously. No one can do it. And then Paul uses himself as an example. He says, well, he starts here, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, because you are the solution. And they'll get into that more in in chapter eight. But he says, so then I myself, Hebrew of Hebrew, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. You look at Paul as an example. Paul loved the law of God. He delighted in the law of God. And what did he do in response to his love for the law? He tried to stop the spread of Christianity. He tried to stop God's movement, God's work. And Paul said, when I look at me as an example of the Jewish people, when I look at the Jewish people as an example of humanity, he says, even though I might delight in the law, I still live out things that are contrary to God's way, God's will, God's life that he has for us. So there needs to be another solution. If you guys remember, um, the book Alice in Wonderland, or maybe you watched the movie Alice in Wonderland. There's this young girl; she falls into a rabbit hole, uh, and then things get way weird. let uh, me just, yeah, uh, it, way weird. She it comes in this this other land, this other world called Wonderland. Uh, And when she's in there, she, she, uh, you know, meets all kinds of crazy people, but she has this experience where she meets these playing cards um, that are like humans, but they're playing cards, and they're doing something, and they're singing a song. Does anyone remember what they're doing? They're painting the roses red. Why are they painting the roses red? Because the queen wanted them red, and if they're not red, they'll all be dead, because those things rhyme, right? So you've got a queen, and she wants red roses, but somebody planted white roses. Yikes. Especially when you realize that the queen, is, she's not one to be trifled with, right? Okay, so now they're like, what do we do? We can't make red roses, but we can paint the white roses so they'll appear red, right? We'll just paint them, and then they'll look like they're red. Paul is saying, the best the Jewish people could do under the law was to paint the roses red. See, what God needs, what God longs for, what God desires and what he did in Jesus is produced a new heart, a heart of flesh. The law governing the actions could only possibly slow down the spread of sin in in the people of God, but it could not change their heart. My dad, uh, he was diagnosed with leukemia about 15 years ago. Um, And leukemia what he had was, was the spreading of his white blood cell count, uh, and they started attacking his own body. Uh, a normal white blood cell count is about 3,000 to 4,000. His white blood cell count was over 100,000. So he got on this test medicine, uh, this great medicine, and, and what it did was it stopped the spread uh, of the leukemia. And the way that my dad described it, he said, pretend you're mowing a lawn, um, and, and then what, when you're mowing the lawn, you're trying to cut the grass really short. And he says what this does is is it has a blade that goes all the way down to the dirt and it cuts all the grass that you can see. So when you after you mow the lawn, you only see dirt. But the problem is there's still grass underneath the ground. See, this medicine can't change the molecular structure of the cells that, that are deceived, that are cancerous. But it can get rid of all the spread of it from that. It can't change who they are. It's the same thing with the law. Even the people of God, under the law of God, the good law of God, could not change their heart. Maybe it could slow the spread, but it could not change who they are. It could only paint the roses red. And I think today, in our day and age, above all, we've got to hear this. Because you know what? It's so easy to be fascinated and amazed by where we've come as as a group in humanity. Uh, Google, or or the company that used to be known as Google, is now it's Alphabet, they have invested $1.5 billion, billion, $1.5 billion into a sister company for the purpose of them reversing the aging process. There's a there's a movie coming out. It's a documentary of these other scientists. It's called The Immortalist, and they believe that in their lifetime they will reverse the aging process. Now I don't know if they'll be able to do that or not, but it's incredible. Think about it'd be amazing. Because what happens is, is our bodies, um, for a period of time, the cells you know, regenerate and they're great. And it's amazing about, about to my age. And then after my age, things start to drop off, right? They th- things deteriorate, right? That's kind of the way it is. They, think they re- can reverse that. It's pretty amazing. But you think about the advances in sociology. Think about the advances in psychology. Think about the ad- advances in government. Think about the advances in all the things our world has done. Technology. Okay, if you ever watch an old movie and they refer to a computer, it's a room full of these giant machines and buttons and lights and things moving around. And I tell you what, they're not as good as this right here. I mean, 40 years ago, you know, a gigantic supercomputer. It's right here. Fits in our pocket. It's amazing what we have done. It's amazing how far we have come. It really is. But I tell you what, we might be able to, let's say, slow down the aging process. Maybe. Who knows? Maybe science will be able to reverse it. I don't know. You know what? Maybe technology is going to get faster and better and better. Maybe medicine is going to increase and we're going to cure cancer. Maybe, maybe sociology will get to a point where we know how to interact in society as a people without killing each other. Maybe. But all we can ever do without the cross of Christ is paint the roses red because we cannot change our hearts. We cannot change who we are. Only God can do it. And the thing that I love so much about our God is that he's willing. He's already done the hard work of coming to the earth and dying on a cross, taking our sin upon himself so that we can become the righteousness of Christ God says, you don't have to save yourselves. You don't have to be good enough. You don't have to uh, be good looking enough, tall enough, popular enough. You don't have to. I will save you. I already have. I want to invite you into my family. This is a message our world needs to hear. And when you come to the end of your rope and you realize you need something else, there is Because our God has come to this earth, lived a perfect life, died the death that we deserved, raised to new life so that we can be invited into his family, so that we can be adopted, so that we can be righteous, so that we can be made whole, so that we can live eternally with him in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, you are an amazing God, incredible God. Thank you so much for your your love for us. Lord, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the good news. Lord, I pray it would never become old. That it would never become stagnant to us. God, that, that always continually you would renew it in our hearts and in our minds that we'd be amazed by your good news. That we'd be amazed by your love. That we'd be amazed by your son, Jesus. I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see you as beautiful as you are pray that you would fill our hearts with gratitude as they should be filled with, as what is fitting with the knowledge of your gospel. And I pray that we would continually look to you, to your son, to your spirit, not to our own strength, not to our own flesh. Thank you for providing the way that we couldn't provide. And we ask these things in the powerful name of your son, Jesus, amen.